Judy's on her way up now to begin to read some scripture to you, and as she gets ready to do that, I just want to place it in context. It comes from Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, and in it he's responding to an act that the Corinthian church did. They, if you read 1 Corinthians, you know they were a pretty conflicted, dynamic group of people. It took a lot of work. And Paul finally has a reason to really praise them. The church in Jerusalem, which was made up of folks who uh, started the very first church, were, were coming to a place where they were, they were having strong financial need. The, the saints, literally the aged, were, were uh, in trouble. And they needed help. And so Paul put out a plea to Gentile Christians that they'd be willing to take up an offering and send it to Jerusalem. And in some ways you would think, well, they really didn't need to do that because they were Gentiles and those were the Jewish Christians. But none of that mattered. They decided to give, and they gave generously a gift that went back to Jerusalem to take care of the saints. So Paul is writing to the, second, to the church in Corinth in this second letter what he thought about that act, about that amazing act of generosity. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, You glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. And while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you, Judy. Would you join with me in prayer? Gracious, loving, and eternal God, we try to find the ways to give you thanks for gifts that are beyond our ability to ever repay. The very life that we live, the breath that we breathe, the people that we love, and the ability to even know what love is. For salvation, for cleansing of sins, and for paving a way of joyful living. All of these and so much more. 
we stand today and simply want to give you thanks and praise for what is truly the most indescribable gift we will ever see. So thank you, Lord, and bless us now as we consider and act and give testimony to your word and truth. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to begin by thanking you. This uh, past week, I flew to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was there staying um, with uh, three friends of mine, Brian and Kay and Bob. We all met in seminary 40 years ago this fall. 40 years ago. And as someone we told that to, uh, one of the waiters uh, in the restaurant we were in, they said, man, that is sweet. And I thought, you know, it is sweet. Uh, it was just, man, when you're with people who've known you for 40 years, oh my God, it's just a, it's a rich time. Now the reason for being there was not only to soak up my time with them, but to engage in worship planning. And so I want to tell you, my good and faithful friends, after hours and hours literally in the library at Luther Seminary, um, I now have worship planned through Lent of 2019. So you can say thank you very much. And uh, we are... Glad to have that focus and direction. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you about Kay. Kay, uh, um, Kay Schroeder, when we first met her, became Brian's wife. Um, just one of the dear people of my life. Um, she is a, a high energy, brilliant uh, deacon of the United Methodist Church. She is a musician, uh, par excellence. Uh, she. Uh, she can destroy a keyboard with joy. She can go everywhere from high church music to very low jazz and about that fast. And she does it all with perfect pitch and doesn't need any music in front of her. She's a composer. She's an amazing child of God. And last December, as she was preparing for Christmas Eve services, sitting at the bench in a church that had been emptied and she was the only one left, she had a stroke and laid on the floor for hours before she was discovered. Part of our reason for going to Minnesota to do this work rather than Duke was because it was just easier for Kay to not have to travel. So we went up and spent time with Kay and Brian, and um, they're an amazing couple. And to watch the work that they do together for her healing to continue. She's, she's laughed with so many gifts. Uh, she has um, very fine speech, uh, nothing is visually different about her, except her, her left hand is, is not able to do uh, what it's supposed to do. And so she continues to do a lot of exercises. And she had a glove on the other day that, that would force her finger to do this, trying to repattern the brain so that she could move her hands, her hand. Now I want you to know she's also still the um, director of music ministry and organist at the church that employs her because all she needs is one hand and two feet. She's an amazing woman. And I was telling them about the fact that uh, I was coming back today to talk to the congregation about the power of generosity. So I said, you guys got any stories about the power of generosity? And later that afternoon, Kay, back, Kay came back and said, let me tell you, after I laid on the floor, 
after I got taken to the hospital, after the diagnosis and the condition was clear and I came out of the hospital, you can understand she was a little depressed. And she says, Rick, the act of generosity of people who just poured out love for me, tangible acts of love, encouraging me, holding me, caring for me, writing notes, making calls. She said, the overwhelming gift of their generosity so blessed me, it carried me through months of otherwise very difficult days. It still does. She's got a long ways to go. I said, Kay, I, I have every confidence in prayer that you're going to be fully brought back to healing, but what's your thinking about that? What, she said, well, the doctor's telling me it's going to take a while. The brain's got to get repattered. She said, I'm thinking it's going to take about eight years. Think about that. She's on a journey for eight years, and she's willing to take it. And she's doing it because people love her and are being generous with her. I said, Kay, do you mind if I share your story? She said, I don't mind at all. And then later the, after, the next day she came back to me and she said, I forgot to tell you the other part of the story that dawned on me after we were talking. She said, so after the stroke, people were giving me these gifts of generosity and I had no way to repay it. So one of the struggles she had to do was to be willing to receive what she could not return she said, and so when I finally grappled with that, I realized that the sister of generosity came, and that's a gift of grace that allowed me to accept, because Kay is not one of these kinds of people who accepts being taken care of. She takes care of people, but grace came and blessed her along with this gift of generosity. I sat with, I hugged, I sang hymns with, I prayed with, I laughed with, I ate with a person whose life has been changed by generosity this entire week. Also, towards the end of the week, I received a confirmation from another person who was in worship with us last week. Uh, she was telling me that she had gone uh, into a little bit of a depression lately with the dynamics of what's happening in our country and our culture. Can you relate? And she's really sort of down about the bigger picture of things and trying to struggle to how to keep buoyancy, keep above that. So after she heard the message last week, she found herself um, in McDonald's, which is another reason to be depressed. But while she was there, while she was there, she's at the counter and, and she decided to do something she'd heard other people she'd never done before. And she asked the person, to the, the wait person, if she would, could pay for the person behind her. Just, you know, and so she did that. And uh, what happened was that not only did the person behind her get a free lunch or whatever, she said the dynamic that happened between myself and the, and the clerk, the, the, you know, the, the fry girl, whatever, I don't know, the entire dynamic changed. This young African-American girl was helping her, and you know, it was just a casual transaction until finally it got transformed into this, I mean, she picked up, the other girl picked up her energy and just was so excited to help this friend take care of the person. I mean, the whole room changed because of a simple act of generosity. A relationship changed because of that. The act of generosity changes lives. Acts of generosity are overwhelming gifts 
that primarily when they are the most powerful come from within. Now, there are things that motivate us to give at times because, of their, because they're external. You know, something happens, like, you know, Kay's stroke. So people wanted to reach out and give her uh, encouragement. But she also found that there are people who just naturally live their life, not because of what's happening around them outside, but by their orientation on the inside. That's why they're generous. Have you ever met a generous person who didn't need to be? Right? People who just automatically, that's who they are. They don't know how to stop being generous because the orientation of their life is to be generous. And the greatest gifts of generosity do not get motivated by the outside, but rather come from within. Today, we're taking a look at some scripture that lines in the reality of the fact that Jesus himself taught radical generosity. Think about this. Jesus, who could have stayed in heaven, chose to come hang out with people like us, pre-redeemed. <laughs> Decided to hang out with us when he didn't need to, but he chose to. And then as he lived his life, continued to show to the dismay of many that his generosity was so strong there was no one that was going to be excluded. Even those who, quite frankly, should have been, according to the religious. He lived radical generosity. He taught his disciples to live radical generosity. So as a result, it shouldn't be surprising that when we get here into the scripture for today... The Apostle Paul has asked believers of Jesus Christ to respond to the saints in Jerusalem who need help, tangible financial help. And to Paul's amazement, not only did the Gentile church take up a collection, but the collection was overflowing. It wasn't because they were wealthy. It was because their hearts had been oriented by Jesus Christ. They just gave because it's what they knew Jesus would have done. So Paul writes back in the words that, that Judy just read to you, affirmation about this amazing equation of generosity that we give and live generously because we first have been reoriented by the gift of Jesus Christ. And that God continues to supply us with every imaginable thing that we need. Now the world tells you that's not true. The world wants to lay around about 57 things that you need that Jesus says, man, that's not what it's about. What you need, Jesus will give you. God just supplies it. And when you take that gift and in turn give it away, the miracle of generosity is multiplied and other people's lives are changed, your life is changed, and yes, God becomes praised. The reason to be generous, according to Paul, because ultimately it goes back to God. And isn't that our orientation? Paul says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. How do you describe the gift that God has given you? you we can talk about it, we can throw some adjectives at it, but the fact that our very ability to even think about it is one of the gifts from God tells us it's really pretty indescribable. Generosity, when it's that gift from within, the orientation that Christ has given us, where we want to act in ways that bring honor to God, that power changes lives, including our own. Yesterday, I was down in Detroit doing a wedding 
Um, and uh, uh, Max and Harriet Clark's daughter Meredith got married, and I got a chance to go down, and it was done in the Congregational Church on Woodward, and, uh, which is one of the grand old churches of Detroit. And you walk in, and you just sort of stand there for a while going, oh, man, this is just amazing. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And you know that the history of this church is fantastic and sacred, but you also know some would say its best days were past. Some would say. Back in the 50s, when they couldn't keep people from coming into church. But today, that's not the reality at Congregational and in many other churches, but they're there and they're doing a ministry. And I want to tell you, their staff could not have been more gracious to us. Gracious upon gracious, generous upon generous. And uh, Reggie was my sound guy. He was sort of an all-purpose kind of guy, but he was my sound guy. And he, he set me up, took care of me, made sure I, whatever I needed, I got kind of thing. So I'm asking at some point when I had a few moments, I said, Reggie, tell me your story. What's it about here? He said, well, he said, nine years ago, the Lord grabbed hold of me and said, Reggie, it's time you quit doing it your way. You're an alcoholic. You've lost your family. You've lost your home. You're on the streets. What do you think? It's time maybe you give up your way. Why don't you try it my way? And in a moment there in the old congregational church on Woodward, old Reggie found Jesus, or maybe more to the point, Jesus laid hold of him. So he says to me yesterday, Pastor, and he was real clear, I wasn't Rick. I was Pastor. And he says, Pastor, this place changed my life and led me to come work here because this place is so generous with God's love. Don't tell me the best days for Congregational Church are past. Don't tell Reggie that. People's lives are still being changed here. It's a place of miracles. Generosity flows when people understand that God has a hold of them and they decide to quit doing it their way and start doing it God's way. That includes our money. Generosity has to include a conversation about money. And we in the church have often felt very uncomfortable about having that conversation. As a young pastor, I used to be very uncomfortable because I didn't get it. I used to think that my need to talk to money with my congregation was somehow the commercial break for the year. Let's, talk, let's quit talking about spiritual things. Let's get the bills paid and let's move on. And God has convicted me to realize just how flawed and wrong that thinking is. The overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ has come into my life, not to claim my time and my talent, but also everything I have, including, thanks be to God, my wealth or lack thereof, my resources, because when I give and surrender those to Christ, my whole attitude around them, those things change, and they become conversations not difficult, but joyous. I used to think that it came time for the fall campaign, I had to do some kind of spiritual extortion of the congregation. You know, make them feel guilty enough to give just barely enough so we can just pay her the bills almost enough. But what I've come to understand, it is a joy to be able to celebrate that our resources is some of the easiest way we can live generously with Christ 
and with the world and celebrate and turn what is a conversation of anxiety into a conversation of joy. And so, last week, I asked the congregation, hey, if you had a chance to dream about this church, what it could be, where it could go, what would you dream? Did any of you dream last week about that? Did any of you take that assignment seriously? What's your wildest beyond dream that you thought about this ministry or you think of this ministry could be in the future? Go ahead, somebody. A center for disaster relief. Wide open doors. A full sanctuary. Tons of kids in this room. More young people in the choir. This plug has been brought to you by the choir. Say again. More, more people from the community here. More people in this congregation out in the community witnessing Christ in an active way. Last week I told you one of the dreams that I have, one of the visions I have for this congregation, and it is simply this, to be the most radically generous community of faith we could ever possibly be beyond our imagination, and help me add the ending, for the sake of Christ. But just the way we live, just what we do, what we have, who we are, we become that radically generous relative that shows up at Thanksgiving. And we listen to how they live their life and we think, man, I wish I could be like them. I wish we could become, I pray that we'll become, I want to lead this church so that we'll become the most radical community of faith that we could ever possibly be beyond our wildest imagination because we'll be like the church in Corinth who gives out of the generosity of God's outpouring of love. And to do that, we'll take prayer dedication, and yes, money. Quite frankly, money's the easiest part. So let's talk about money just for a second. Right now to run this ministry, every year we have an annual budget of $1.2 million. It's been hovering close to that for several years now. Rick Huttenlocker is in the audience. He'll correct me if I get way off base here. But, you know, every year at the end of the year, we, we do a campaign, and, you know, we hope that we'll increase 2 or 3% in the budget. You know, I have fantasies about more, but, with, you know, we just want to be able to do a little bit more next year. This year, though, you're, we're all being asked to think about taking the next step, which is why you have, and if you want to take it out right now, you feel free to do it, you receive this chart in your bulletin. And this chart in your bulletin is a take the next step chart. It's a real simple one to figure out. You take a look, and what do you notice? Well, first of all, you notice there are stair steps, and you notice that each step has on it a number of people and a dollar range. The number of people are the folks who give around that range of money to the church. It's pretty simple to see. So what's your first thing that you want to do? I'm going to tell you the first thing I want to do is I need to find out where I was on the chart and see how I was in competition with the rest of you. You know, where am I land on this? I want to know, what I, you know how am I doing? 
And I want to find out, you know, well, I, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Seriously, we have, uh, oh, I lost my number here. We have 524 active givers and 700 and some. I lost my number there, but whatever it is. I mean, we've got some folks giving to the church. That's the point. So I asked Kathy Walker, who's our finance person in the church, um, do some calculations for me. What if everyone on this sheet took the next step? In other words, what if every person on this chart stepped up to the next step? What, what would that mean in the budget for, this, for 2018? She assumed that the people who are already giving all took the next step. Our budget would grow to $1.8 million. If we all just took the next step, our budget would increase by 50%. And with that, what do you dream? I mean, $600,000 means nothing in the kingdom of God, but ministry dreamt and, and, and made possible, that matters. That's a generosity that changes people's lives. What would that look like if we all took the next step? And if somebody's gonna say, well, you know, but I can't take the next step. Okay, maybe you can, but maybe someone else can take two steps to cover you. You know how that works in family. Because this is not about judgment. This is not about, oh, I'm not as big on the chart as I need to be, or, hey, hey, I'm near the top, I'm good. It's not what this is about. It's simply about truth. This is the truth of how we receive revenue to support a ministry that we love and are called to do. You need to know the truth so you can, therefore, begin to take the next step to help us go to the next step in ministry. That's what this is for and how I hope you will use it as you consider because next week in this amazing moment of worship, we're all going to receive our estimate of giving cards and we're all going to get a chance to make our commitment to the 2018 budget. We're going to do it all together at the same time in worship and that is so weird here. We've never done it that way before since I've been here. But don't you think it's a pretty amazing moment that next Sunday we can take an act of covenant commitment together in the same moment as an act of worship to Jesus Christ? So this week, I need you to be thinking about what you're going to put on that card, begin dreaming, and think about whether you can take the next step or two in your giving. We're all going to do it together. But of course, you know me. I have another dream. So what if I could just magically, and I say this only partially tongue-in-cheek, wave the magic wand and make this a tithing church? Tithing, what does that mean? Well, we're going to give you a real simple definition. 10% of your income after taxes. Let's just get away. Before or after taxes. I don't think God cares, but for the sake of conversation today, 10% of your income after taxes. What if the folks who give to this church, assuming all the basics that they're taught about the demographics and annual income, household income in the community, and da, 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 and going conservatively and asking Kathy Walker to do the numbers and not me, because she should, if we were a tithing congregation, our income for next year would be how big is your dream? See, it's not about financial, spiritual extortion. It's about dreaming. And it's about being committed to what God is asking us to do in this place. What could happen 
we have an adult righteous mission every year, and we raise, Jimmy, what, $20,000 or so to go down into wherever, right, 20000 What if you had eight of those events throughout the year touching people's lives in eight communities? I mean, what could it be? What could it mean? Why does it matter that we take the next step or the next step or several steps and grow eventually to be that congregation who sees tithing as not the exception but rather the norm for us? It means that we're willing to put ourselves out there for the sake of Christ and to let generosity be a conversation of our finances as well as our prayers and our time and our talent and our fellowship and friendship. I want to be honest with you, I'm still at work. You've heard me tell you before, Laura and I, long ago, in our marriage, got to the place of being tithers, and I'm going to be confessional with you. A large portion of my tithing goes to this church, and some of it goes a little few other places, plus some other. I want to be fully honest about that. But tithing's not an issue in our family, because Laura came into the family. It wasn't Rick, it's Laura. Came into the family with the assumption we're going to tithe. And seeing she has control of the checkbook... But it's not the same thing as just saying just because we tithe that I'm automatically as generous as I ought to be. You can tithe and not be generous. Did you know that? You can tithe and still be a grumpy giver. But God loves a happy giver, a generous, loving, cheerful giver. That's what Scripture says. So how do you get to that place? Well, after a lot of prayer recently, this is what I believe to be true. I believe you need to take your gift and look at it from this vantage point. First, you have to think about your gift as something that confirms what you're about, confirms your truth. Who am I? Who am I right now? I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a, I'm a 62-year-old man with no kids at home. And that's different than saying I'm a 27-year-old man with three kids at home. Who am I today? And what am I saying about my truth as I make my gift, either in terms of worship attendance or prayer or attendance in a Sunday school class or in mission or in my estimate of giving? What does it say about who I am? It allows me to confirm my truth, if for no one else, for myself. Laura's always said the most important part about our tithing is that every week we remember that God is first. What else does it do? I want to suggest to you that it also allows you to celebrate in the gift. Celebrate with joy. We get to be a part of this. You know, the attitude I used to have as a first-time preacher and I, was, I had to have a congregation of about money, I'd go... Uh, you know, we need some money, and uh, if you could give us some more money, we'd really, we'd be grateful, and uh, so could you do that, and, uh, you know, talk to the finance committee, and off I'd go. It is a joy to be a part of something that matters and makes a difference in the world. My giving to the ministry of the church is not obligation, it's celebration, I'm a part of this. I get to be a part of this. Something in this world that's making a difference 
that is changing my life and other people's lives and will change other lives and is laying a foundation of dreams that will change lives for decades. That's what I get to be a part of. That's celebration. I also get to choose with my gift to create hope. My gift doesn't stop once the deposit is made. And it doesn't matter, by the way, whether you put a check in the envelope and put it in the plate or do automatic withdrawal. We like automatic withdrawal because it helps us make sure we're faithful, helps the church make sure it gets its money on time. But at the end of the day, it's not about how the money gets here. It's about the fact that when it gets here, it's creating the possibility of hope for others. 500 children are going to be getting candy from us today. They are hopeful right now. (laughs) But what if of those 500, we could get 50 or 60 more of them to come into this ministry and they could get to know other friends who were followers of Jesus Christ to walk with them through high school. And what if we could get their families to come in and they wouldn't have to figure out the struggle how it is to be a young family in this community without Jesus? What, What if that could happen? hopes that could create. As you're thinking about what you're going to do in your life around being generous to God's work and to God and all the ways in which we talk about that, think about what you do, how it confirms you, how it helps you celebrate, and how it creates hope. All of this I offer to you today because I think Paul is right. I don't have a way of telling you exactly with descriptive terms that are adequate about God's gift to us. But you know what they are for you. My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has changed my life. And like Reggie, in some ways, I had to learn to quit doing it my way and start doing it God's way. So thanks be to God for the gift that we will never repay, and we're not asked to. It's called grace. Instead, we get to give and be the people of God. May God bless you so richly that the people around you this week can't help but get changed by the overflow. It is our prayer. In the name of Christ, so be it. Amen. Thank you.